Hello, I'm Sean Clark, and this one was written for Poetry for Grenfell, um, a recent publication, and it's called The Struggle Continues. Black Samurai expressed in no uncertain way, the struggle continues. In the name of truth and justice, they said what they had to say. As years passed by, the almost inevitable struck, we took our eye off the ball, destined to fall, but wasn't it a preventable crook? We, because around the country, without precaution, it could happen to many more, to anyone, potentially. Will it any more, to those at risk, who happen to be poor? Who would choose such a destiny, without question or scrutiny, when through unity, Associated residents wanders, tempted, mutiny. Seems some are too desperate for a roof over their heads, some place to settle, in a place where forefathers and mothers claimed streets were paved with gold metal. Divided, we Grenfell, and so the struggle continues. Today, but hopefully not tomorrow, the struggle continues. Unwavering, unanswered questions, authorised yet somehow unapparent until too late. Unchallenged when it mattered, when we could have predicted it, without debate. We paid our taxes to con men, at times elusive as the wind, catching us out. We went to sleep when we should have been awake but we couldn't stay awake all night. We didn't imagine what was coming, that a common enemy would give us a great shake. And where was the mainstream media when some had spoken out? Where were the professionals when dodgy plans were in doubt? Why were they employed if not to do their work, looking the part, convincing us in their tie and shirt? Under the carpet, leaving deadline dirt for a select demographic to be hurt. A ticking time bomb bound to explode. A messy affair set to erode and then implode. A festering nonsense that seemed fine at the time. We trusted without sufficient complaint. While evil was at play without restraint. The idea of prevention it's a favourable mention. Yet we can be too busy attending our own convention as the struggle, it continues. Directly or indirectly affected, victims should never suffer alone. I speculate there's disunity or not quite enough unity to find that strength to overcome Busy with own post-truths, genuine disruptions and distraction. With the latest craze, games, problems, drugs and lack of more effective interaction. Struggles we accepted long ago, whereby some wouldn't moan. Because after all, this is England, not war-torn Syria. Why would anyone choose such a predicament? Why tolerant, like we have no choice? Why? like we have no voice until it happens to us. 
as we locate the oneness in our identities, that shared survival instinct, may we recognize and invest our power to change wisely, contributing to a safer place for all, only by being culturally considerate, another way to compensate, doing something beyond color, looking out for each other as the struggle continues. That was Sean Clark with The Struggle Poem. Sean is a founding member of the Urban Word Collective. He writes songs, articles and short stories and is an accidental poet. Thank you, Sean. This is Kyoto Lab. Welcome. I'm Aisha Ali and we are very lucky to have Shugufta Iqbal in the house. Hello Shugufta. Hi Aisha. How are you today? I'm good thank you. So Shugufta is going to share um, some work. Would you like to give us a little bit of a background of the piece you're going to share? The piece that I'm sharing later on today with you is a piece that was commissioned to write for the Portico Library, which is based in Manchester city centre. And they've got this amazing section on the occult, witchcraft and spells and all kinds of really interesting collection of books and just bits of information to get your hands on. And I was reading through it as part of the commission and the residency there and ended up writing this piece based on myths that I came across about witches. But also I have a slight obsession with rivers uh, being Punjabi, which means the five rivers. There's one specific love story based around a river and a woman who's the daughter of a clay pot maker and I thought where can I take this <laughs> um, and what kind of twist can I put on it. Growing up in the 90s um, I was a big Shri Devi fan <laughs> as we all, we all <laughs> yes, as we all were and she made a couple of movies. All I can think of is Mr India <laughs> that's all I can think of. <laughs> Mr India no. so she's got one where and there's lots of legends where um, women become snakes um, and they usually turn into snakes because they're originally snakes but they come and turn into a human form to carry out acts of revenge which I think is probably easier mm. to carry out acts of revenge as a, as a snake than a human but yeah um, and they turn into humans and I just thought there's so much I can do with this and mess around with um, so that's my really long-winded way of giving you a background <laughs> <laughs> about how I incorporated five rivers and Bollywood and the Portico <laughs> Library in Manchester <laughs> into the short no. story <laughs> really really great like how much fun that must have been just like sifting through all these amazing stories and and then using that as a way to like kind of connect with your own heritage and background and kind of put it together and then play with it that must have been really fun it was it was really good fun and it's interesting that you did this a year ago so well before lockdown um and yet the themes are kind of about loneliness and emptiness and like thirst and yes. I think it kind of fits in quite well with what a lot of people are living through great some of us want to be snakes and, and some of us do <laughs> yes <laughs> so shall we take a listen yes it has been told to you as a love story for far too long mostly because we do not know how to honor grief so we confuse grief and loss with stories of rivers and storms and lovers 
These storytellers are well-versed in lies, shape-shifting the truth so your rituals keep on, but it's always difficult for you to put your finger on the origin of your worship. Because the story was not about love. The story of the river is actually not a love story at all. Well, at least not as you know it. You could say it's a story about a hunger. But more than that, it is really a story about a snake woman. A snake woman who knows all about loss and loneliness. A woman unclaimed is a dangerous thing. An omen. A sign of the times ahead being difficult, of the times ahead being full of clouds heavy hanging over our frightened heads, and this is the story of such a woman. Her mornings are quiet, full of tea, namaz, the feeding of plants, sweeping and the preparing of clay. She lives in a small brick building, pink and blue against the brightness of noon. On most days when the sun is at its peak, with a glass of water by her side, she sits under the veranda, hands swirling clay from one side to another, her whole body rocking clay pots into being side to side. There is an art to this. There is a peace in this. There is a worship in this. She needs this as she lives only in her dreams, conversations in her head, and prayers on her lips. The villagers have seen this kind of loneliness before, the kind that can trap a man, leave children fatherless, and bring ruin on all the strands that connect their humdrum lives. In places like this, you always need someone to blame, and that someone is almost always a woman. And yet, despite this, they could not keep away from her, and begrudgingly, After every Jummah prayer, they queued up outside her house. They came from far and they came from wide for her clay pots. They could not help themselves because the water tasted like no other when held in the belly of these pots. It was a technique handed down from generation to generation. The local red sand giving the clay a grit and a tang that was said to overwhelm the senses. The drinker often claimed a closeness to Allah that even the prayer mat could not give him, and while the creator of these clay pots was considered a sinner, only through her hands could one find that closeness, a closeness that could only otherwise be felt in death. And every time she pulled the vessel out of the kiln, its mouth greeted her with a sunbeam shriek, empty and unholy, awaiting the purification of water, zum-zum, These pots would sit in thirsty stacks, watching her walk from wheel to kiln across dizzying courtyards and strides of silentness and loneliness. And the mountains burst above her home, and the rivers brimmed with life, and the endless body of sky laid its breath over whole worlds, while her clay pots, like hateful children, reminded her of everything that was empty about here. So her nights were loud. An unshakable moan stretched itself across her ceilings. She sat throughout the night, back upright tight. So she stared and she cried and she starved and she binged and she howled and she gasped for a breath, looking for peace, for an escape, in the moulding and glazing of pots into being.
And of course, as pot maker starved, her pots starved. And it is only fitting that her drinkers starved. And soon everyone suffered from a deep thirst. Their mouths parched. They ran their fingers over the dents and patterns that adorned the clay vessels, unaware of all the curses that a wanting woman spat into them. Soon enough, parched and full of fear, the villagers descended to the rivers, walking into its fury, singing to the ancestors for forgiveness. They began collecting instead rainwater, thinking that the wells had become heavy with nazar. They started to stack pots on top of pots, on top of pots, on top of pots, on top of pots throughout the monsoons, because forgiveness from ancestors is not always easy to obtain. And while their skins drenched on fat soilful raindrops, their throats roared fires. So sacrifices were made. In desperate times, it is easy to believe in everything and nothing all at once. The water gods had to hear their pleas, with gifts as sweet and loud as the thud of a living body against the water of a well. Despite these offerings, they found that they still parched, Ulcers gathered on the roof of their mouths, their teeth rubbing against bulbous gatherings in their cheeks. Because the more she hungered, the more she cursed, and the more she cursed, the more they thirst. Her loneliness calling out to all the magic that is held in the world of the jinn, except it was not for love, but for life that her soul called out for. Not the empty promise of a man, but the full smack of life against her stifled existence that she longed for. And with her every prayer, the pots filled up with the freshest showers. Rainwaters gurgled its voice from courtyards and kitchens. The villagers watched themselves in water, full of fear and thirst and anger. Drink me down, drink me down. Drink me down and all will be well. Drink me, drink me, drink me down, the pots chanted. So the villagers drank, and they drank, and they drank until their bellies swelled. Their walk began to sway and slop entire oceans, and still they thirst. They lived in this perpetual agony their eyes more accusatory than ever before. Everything was Nazar, everything was a sin. They sought out the Gala Jadu and when they looked for it, they of course rested their eyes on our pot maker. Her big body on strong bones, the smoothness of skin that is full of water, cheeks as warm as the sun, she was full of evidence that the water had rested in her bones. And she was full of the evidence of the damnation she had brought on them all. They knew then that only her body could stop their thirst. But on this occasion, it was not the wells that they placed her body in. They felt the spirit of the waters were calling out for something a little bit more. On the fifth day of the thirst, after Jummah prayers, a procession began. Dia lit, it snaked its way from the potmaker's home all the way to the mouth of the river. Held by the thick twist of her hair, she was paraded through the barren streets until finally she found her body immersed in the cold slap of the river. 
her lungs taking in water, gulp after gulp, bubbles rippling through her while the villagers piled clay and rock over her desperate wide mouth struggle for air. The river surface crumbling into a rippled reality as her mind raced to rest on a safety, a freedom, an escape, a rising, a buoyancy. But it never seemed to come, and as she drank in the river one final time, her skin broke, shredded itself into the thickness of scales, a silent twisting and turning, a disfiguration from chest through to hips, out of the water her body rose up, while the villagers, one stone at a time, willing the thirst to come to an end, tried to pelt her back down into the depth of her own myth. It was a communal cleansing. If she became all boneless, or belly, wide snap back fangs, finally filling her appetite with an open-mouthed hunger that her face could never have allowed her on land. The hollowness in her could only be silenced by the swallowing of an entire river, and she drank it in from the tip of the Himalayas right down to the Indian Ocean, pulling villages and towns into her spirit, never to feel fear again. She filled her souls with the bodies of the parched villagers, drank their blood into her form. She grew the lengths of hundreds of metres, slim as a sword, and finally filled to the core. To this day, when you stand at the height of those mountains, you will come to see a body of rocks and boulders snaking through forests, leading to nowhere and leading to everywhere. The outline of tombs and dried out bones lie buried in its journey. And if you ever find yourself here, approach with care. Come bearing clay pots packed with offerings of life, of fullness, a plea, and never to feel the hunger, the emptiness of a snake woman denied. Come bearing an entire world reflected at the mouth of a clay vessel. Thanks so much, Agatha. That was great. Um, I was really struck by the line in it about how we don't know how to honour grief. Mm, I think, yeah, I think grief, it's an interesting one because... And I think also being British, we're very formal with our feelings. Um, and especially in this last year with, with, I don't want to keep talking about COVID, but we know we're living in these times. I think grief has really hit us hard um, and made us think about mortality, made us think about old age, made us think about our relationship to our grandparents. And I think it's, it's forcing us again to have that conversation that maybe we've been uncomfortable with for so, for so long. But I think also I've experienced grief in different cultures. And I've mm. experienced grief um, by going to funerals that are held in particular Pakistani Muslim communities, outward display of grief. Um, and sometimes there are people who aren't even that closely related to the person who has died, who is making a lot of like um wailing and lots of crying um, mm. and lots of beating your chest um and that i think really threw me as a as a kid when i went to a few funerals um but it made me think about what grief does and what 
that space does to us because I think often that space forces us to reflect again like the times we're in on on the nearness of death on the choices that we're making the life we are living because there is only one life um and I just wonder what happens in that space how does it manifest itself and I was at a funeral two years ago of a close friend and it was just it was really really heartbreaking but again it's really hard for people not to and myself included not to center ourselves in in that passing of somebody else's life so yeah grief is something that we I think need to talk more about and try and get our heads around um, because it's it's a part of our lives um, yeah we can't escape it um, and as Muslims we're taught to always prepare for death there are things in our traditions and cultures that help us to manage that and prepare for it but it's um the natural thing we want to do is run and hide because it's such an overwhelming feeling yeah definitely and of course um grief isn't just centered around people dying it can be for lots of different things like of course lots of people are experiencing climate grief and around the pandemic i've heard uh, the term anticipatory grief and mm. it's interesting you were saying about the wailing because as a vocal artist myself um i was looking into something called keening i don't know if you've heard that no so it's something that they had in Ireland and I guess in other countries where it was literally like where women, it was women, not men, women were encouraged to wail their grief and they would pay women who weren't even involved in the grief to come and wail together just because the sound was just so powerful and it like almost exercised the grief out of your body. I've heard of this in other cultures as well, where people are paid to mourn and, and to wail and, and cry and grieve, which is interesting. It's really fascinating human behaviour, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, what yeah. I heard in Ireland was that it just was such a powerful force that actually patriarchy kind of got in the way and it, it was banned. And that's why it doesn't happen anymore, which is such a shame. Mm. Um, and also you kind of mentioned God and ancestors and that kind of you know, the kind of, I guess, the higher power, the, the, the thing that's bigger than all of us. Um, and I wondered, like, how much you identify with that? Um, I think it's yourself. a big part of, yeah, I think for me, it's a big part of my routine in my life. And I think I turned to it a lot more during lockdown because it got to a stage where I didn't have a routine necessarily, especially when my children aren't at home, they're at their father's house. Um, I can easily spend all day in bed watching Netflix, which is great. Um, <laughs> but at some point you're like, I need to go and have a shower and brush my teeth now, get up, get out of bed, um, actually have a day, go for a walk. Um, and what I like about faith and, and probably organized faith or whatever is a sense of community is, is the routine is the rituals is five times a day you get up you pray um and if you get caught into a sort of spiraling system of negative thoughts well it's now doher it's now aso so you you have to go on and pray and i think i find that space very meditative mm -hmm. um and i want to explore it i want to explore it in my writing because i think people can really come to religion organize religion with their own sense of this is what it's going to be. Um, mm. And it differs from person to person. You could be in the same faith, you can be from the same sects, and yet how you approach it is completely different. And I think what I wanted to look at is how people turn to faith, but also kind of twist faith. And, you know, this idea of, especially as Muslims, we're kind of like, there is one God and this is how we, how we view the world. And then you have things that come in that are like black magic and the evil eye and mm. sacrifices and, and 
there's always kind of like somebody just kind of making the water a little bit and I wanted to kind of explore that in this. I know for myself uh, being raised Muslim it was certainly prayer was certainly sold to me as like a duty and spirituality almost didn't come into it and I so I'm sad about that I really wish that that was a bit more of the conversation because then I might have been more intrigued by it but it sounds like for you it's almost like a that space is almost like a reset for you so you can kind of go back to get back to the beginning almost and start again (laughs) yeah but also it forces me to do things like focus on my breathing focus on on my body when I'm praying to focus on it's it's sometimes if I have a day where I'm at home on my own I haven't spoken to anybody it'll be the first time I hear a voice a live voice or I've spoken I've said something out aloud you bring that to that space and it's quite sometimes a bit of a shock when you hear your own voice because you haven't heard it for all morning so how has your writing practice been affected during this time um I think it comes and goes in waves sometimes I'm really dedicated and I think well there's nowhere I can go I'm not spending my weekend in Berlin or wherever it is I want to be so I'll just write um and that's been really good but in other in other ways because um, there's so much I'm having to do from home I'm so like my life is so cramped for time um, yeah. and I can't get much done. So it's, it's sometimes I'm really sort of every weekend I'm head down writing and then other times I'm not, but I think I'm doing a lot of reading, which I consider to be part of the process. If you're not reading, then you're not writing to your best abilities. So I consider mm-hmm. that to be part of it and I'm doing a lot of reading. So that's, that's a positive. Yeah. It must be very hard being single mum in lockdown, trying to be creative. Well, I mean, it's it is hard but then in some ways it's forcing me to learn lots of things that I wouldn't have otherwise so giving the kids activities I can't just give it to them and say be gone see you in an hour's time (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing emails (laughs) that Um, is how we normally talk to the kids be gone (laughs) be gone with you Um, so you have to get involved and I've done so much arts and crafts and um, just really interesting arty things which I wouldn't have done otherwise and I think it's good for your brain I think it's good for you as an artist to try things that you wouldn't normally do so yeah I think it's been it's been fun yeah it kind of unlocks your inner child and they're like I don't need to unlock my inner child my inner child's just out yeah we just want to be teenagers (laughs) now they just want to be teenagers (laughs) they don't know what they have (laughs) Shagifta thank you so much ah thank you Aisha Thanks so much to our special guest, Shagafta Iqbal, and to Sean Clark. Next week, we'll be back with Bertel Martin, who is a playwright and a producer, and also a piece by Miri Mossad, who we are supporting to write a musical theatre piece. So that's exciting to have some of that work. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. We are Kyoto Lab. <laughs>